Welcome to Speak Out World, the podcast dedicated to arts, activism, and more. I'm your host, Jewel L. And I'm your host, Dino L. And we want to thank you for tuning in worldwide. And we also want to send our prayers out to all of our listeners who have lost loved ones due to coronavirus and those who are recovering as well. We're praying for you. Yes, yes. And you know what, Dino? Thank you so much for that. You all will be right back with our wonderful guest, international artist Jim Hill. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back after this short break. today's show, we are talking about the courage of an artist. And it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to be an artist um, at any given period of time. And so, you know, I like to start off with my quote. So my quote for today is, to create one's world in any of the arts takes courage. And so, uh, Dino, We have with us today an artist who has been creating artwork for over 50 years. His mosaic pieces captures the history and culture of African-American people and just people throughout the world. We are so excited to have with us the legendary, the international visual artist, model, activist, and entrepreneur, the one and only Jim Heal. All right, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to Speak Out World. It is such an honor. It is such an honor to have you here. Um, Dino and I got a chance to meet you um, a few years back, and maybe a few years now, back when you did a huge exhibit in Atlanta uh, doing Black History Month. Yes. And so. Yes. And so now for us to have this podcast and to have you on it is such an honor for us. Um, Yeah. So, Jim, you grew up in Brooklyn, New York, right? So how did you get started in the mosaic art? Well, basically, I was always in love with art because of my uncles. Okay, my uncle Norman was one of the first black artists who did work for Esquire magazine. My other uncle, Uncle Woolburn, was the one who did uh, the, the logo for the Mayflower moving truck. You know, came from a family of nine, you know, didn't have that kind of money. Uh, Dad was on a meal ticket mission and put me on the mission, too. And, of course, I couldn't afford to buy any paint at Pearl S. Paint because oil painting was expensive, all right? So what I did was uh, I went to the garbage cans. And <laughs> I found uh, uh, posters that I started to say, okay, my whole art is going to be around recycling. I went to the back of the grocery store where they had cardboard uh, wrapped up that they used to bring in the food with, and I took the cardboard. 
So with the poster paper and the cardboard, the only thing I had to buy was the glue, okay? Ah, okay. So it, it was enough for a poor boy like me to make it happen. But it really started to happen because, you know, as people would check me out on YouTube, I was doing uh, homeless shelters and stuff. And I did one art piece that I sold for $3,000. And I took the $3,000 and I opened up showers for the homeless men. Now, I don't know if I made a mistake with that because the homeless men didn't want to go to bed. They stayed in the shower all night, okay? So you have to understand, I mean, these are uh, brothers that uh, didn't change their clothes, didn't change their socks. So my art was really helping out. And that was the beginning for me to let me know that, hey, listen, I don't want to dime from this art. All I want to do is try to make a difference, okay? So right now, I'm really trying to push art therapy, okay? I'm calling it mosaic therapy because what's going to happen is I am contacting homeless shelters right now in Georgia and letting them know that the kids can actually use this to you know, just deal with the stress that they're going through because it's hard on homeless children, okay? And if they can just sit down and cut out little squares and then diamonds and then put it on paper and create because I tried it already in poor churches like uh, Mount Sinai Church over there in Marietta. And okay. I took a bunch of children and with those children, what I was able to do was I was able to put together a picture and it calmed them down. They were excited. They had something to do. So I'm saying, okay, I'm going to try working with this in old folks' homes also because some of the ladies are stressed and they need to relax. And I said, this is what calmed me down. Because yes. to be totally honest, I had more energy than the A train, and that's a train in Brooklyn. So, <laughs> so what happened was, hey, listen, I sat down and I started putting those images together and drawing. Now, the thing that my uncle's pressure put on me was draw what you see. Meanwhile, mm. I was in the civil rights movement. I was basically. Uh, the leader of the young adults for civil rights in the Brooklyn projects called Fort Greene. So I'm drawing what I see, okay? And not only drawing what I'm seeing, what is actually happening to me, because we went to picket Wall Street, and when we were picketing Wall Street, they uh, pulled brown bag, paper bags full of water and they started bombing us on the march. Of wow. course, I was slugged with one of the brown bags and I hit the floor for the counter too. But that mm. was hard, okay? Because it was not only seeing it, it was living it. And everything that I was going through, I mean, I had youngsters that, you know, because of course I went into trying to educate young children, especially up in Harlem, 
And mm -hmm. a lot of drugs, heroin, and all that stuff out there in Harlem during the time I was teaching, okay? And it's probably still there now, but it, the more lives you take on, the more death you'll suffer. Mm -hmm. I had to do a piece on one of my students, Anthony, because Anthony, he really loved working with hands-on in our science experiment, but Anthony was the type of young man that would speak up and he would never take a second seat. And when the drug dealers came to, in his house, he stood up to them mm. and because they shot his parents and they shot him between his eyes, right wow. in his head. But I had to draw a picture of that, okay? Because that was my student. So my art became the life I was living, all right? And still living this life and seeing what's going on with Black Lives Matters and everything, you know, I said to myself, Lord, when it's your time to take me, take me. But until then, I'm going to try to, as the brothers said, used to say to me in the projects, a hill, man, make some sense out of it. And that's all I'm going to do. Amazing. Jeff, not cutting you yeah. off, but you take portraits and then you recreate those using your creative work with tiny cuts of paper. Explain to our listeners your art form because it's so meticulous and it's so different. Will you please explain how you do it to our listeners so that they know? Okay. Well, let me just tell you uh, about some of the portraits I did. I did some portraits of the children in Ghana and the poverty that was in. So what I did was I would get some posters of all different colors, okay? And I would cut a diamond shape. And first I would draw the picture of the youngsters, okay? And after drawing the pictures of the youngsters, I would look at the different browns, the different reds, the different greens, and I would put the colors together. Now, just like you use oil, you can blend colors together with paper. So I started blending colors. And the whole idea was I wanted the images to actually depict the children that I was drawing. And I just wish I had some pictures right now where I could just show you, or if I brought some with me, I, I wasn't thinking I could have shown you how you actually cut those pieces of paper and put it together. Like, for example, I'm doing a pictures right now, and this is one of the things that I'm doing right now. Okay. okay. And um, I had to cut the, the whites, the reds, the blues together, and actually cut out the piece of the young man, okay? in terms of him with a blunt in his mouth and the stressed out situation that he's going through. I, I took another piece that I thought was important of H. Rap Brown. Now, some of you are too young to know who H. Rap Brown is, okay? Okay, but I drew that uh, Eldridge Cleaver's wife, okay? Mm -hmm. I just tried to put all those pieces together. But again, the way I would do it is I would take little pieces of paper and I would cut it out and make the image actually believable. 
Okay. Wow. Okay. So um, that's basically what I'm working on now. I'm just working on uh, the 60s and some of the people, and I'm going to relate the 60s to Black Lives Matter because all it is is an extension of what we went through when we were yes. coming up. Okay. Definitely. Definitely. You know, Jim, what some, a lot of our viewers may not know about you is the fact that you, in addition to your artwork, but you are really a trailblazer for black models, especially in 1980s. Like you were, you know, you were the gentleman, you were, you were the man, right? And, and um, from what I understood, you were literally earning like up to $15,000 a day. Um, being in commercials and magazine ads as a sophisticated brother. I mean, for for all of us who may not know, we take for granted, we take for granted all the black models that we see today, but they don't know that you were one of those trailblazers that was setting the mold for that sophisticated black, well-cultured, global traveling black male. So tell us a little bit how you got into modeling and you know, what was that life like for you? Well, well, I was the first black man ever to be shot in Success Magazine. Now, picture mm. that, because they don't think that we are successful, okay? But I was the first one to shot there. I was on the cover of Black Enterprise. I mean, uh, the, the big money was in beer, booze, and cigarettes, okay? And what happened was that I had to give that up because I met some of my Nigerian friends and they were so excited about me because mm -hmm. they had big billboards of me in Africa. They had big billboards of me in the West Indies, but those billboards were of me doing beer, booze, and cigarettes. Wow. So I said, uh-oh, I am instigating, I am the one who are causing some of my people to get involved in beer, booze, and cigarettes. And I never drank, I never smoked, but here I was modeling this. But anyway, it was, um, it was something that I thought of. I said, you know what? I need to open up my own school and I can't do it with teacher money. I need modeling money. I need acting money, okay? Because what happened was that I started to um, work as an actor, too. I, I played the lead role in Big City Blues Crackdown. It was Crackdown, Big City Blues, okay? And here I was fighting the drug dealer. It was just up my alley because <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I was doing all my life, okay? So the bottom line was um, it was a way for me to make money, to put it back in the community. And that's all modeling meant to me. So I did that for 10 years. I was able to set up a program for children and it went along really good. You know, I mean, um, and, and, and it was people like Queen Latifah who saw uh, the stuff I was doing and she said, here, Here's $3,000 for me to help out with the homeless. She said, take the $3,000 and buy some more art equipment. And here you go, making money for the homeless. But 
It was modeling everything I had a hidden agenda on. Everything was to help my community. And Jim, you mentioned teaching. You taught in the New York public schools, a middle school teacher, for over 30 years. Can you tell us how that impacted your artistic ability over the time that you were an educator? It was, it was really a learning experience, okay? I, I taught 10 years in Fort Greene in terms of junior high school, and then I taught 20 years in Harlem in terms of elementary science. But it was just so unbelievable because basically I had a lot of energy and I had a great imagination. And it was my imagination and energy that kept the kids focused. They really loved my lesson. I mean, I came in one day at all sad in front of the class and they said, what's the matter, Mr. Hill? I said, I killed a pregnant woman. They said, what? They was shocked. I said, yeah. I said, I, I came in the house, you know, because I live in the hood. I turned on the lights and all the roaches started running. So I slammed <laughs> one and out of slamming one, I said, a baby walked out. Okay. And I named the baby Hubba Bubba. The kids were listening. They would not take their mind off. They wanted to know all about Hubba Bubba and how I was raising Hubba Bubba. Because I told them, listen, I brought Hubba Bubba out there. I wanted to raise him to be my own son. The kids wouldn't, I, I was teaching science now. The kids would not stop. That I had their absolute attention. And other teachers would walk by and say, how is it that this guy got these kids' attention so? But I was from their same hood. I spoke their language. Mm -hmm. I understood their challenges. And I was causing a lot of uproar because the whole thing in the educational system is for the kids to fail. And if the kids fail, yeah. the school gets more money. More money. And, and I was messing them up. Because mm -hmm. I was doing hands-on science. It was a test called the ESPEC test, the ESPEC examination. And I had kids passing, okay, because all I would do is I would throw a bulb out there, a wire out there, and a light bulb, and I said, light it. And some of them would burn their hands because I didn't put no insulation on it. I let them learn the hard way. Learn by That's trial it. and fire, right? Yeah. Yeah, right. You crazy. This thing is burning us. And but when I went to Ghana and I went to oh, the kids loved it. I mean, I had no behavioral problems. And this was something that I needed to learn. Because when I was teaching in the hood, you know, I had to come up with all kinds of imagination to control the behavioral problems. But in Africa, those kids wanted it so bad and talking about overcrowded. I mean, some classes that I taught had over 50 kids in the wow. hood. Okay. A science, a science class? Science. Science. I was teaching hands-on science now. And one class, I was trying to teach balls and ramps. It's basically gravity, okay? Because that's one part of the examination that the kids have to pass about gravity, okay? And 
it was so hot in the hut. So I took the whole class outside and I started showing them balls and ramps and had them, you know, dealing with the balls and stuff like that. And one African woman came up to me after the class and said, you are one of the bravest men that I know. And I said, well, why are you saying that? She said, because there are poisonous snakes out there and you are out there teaching. <laughs> now, between you and me, if I knew they were poisonous snakes, I would have I been in the classroom. Hear but me? It, ignorance is bliss at this moment, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I, asked, and I felt bad because I had the kids out there and I asked one of the kids, I said, we, uh, I said, I'm so sorry. Were you scared of the poisonous snakes? And out of nowhere, he pulled out a machete. He said, no, if they come, I kill them. I said, whoa. You know, <laughs> I did not understand the culture. But, I was, wow. but in teaching the kids, I learned about the kids in Harlem and the kids in Africa. And I learned that you have to motivate them. That's the key to education. Motivation. Yes, if yes. You don't motivate, then the kids don't want to learn. Absolutely. Okay? And you can't tell them, hey, listen, you got to get your education so you'll be able to eat, so you won't be able to, so you won't go to jail. It's that ain't motivation. No. No, you have to actually show them, you know, um, basically how important education is, but then you have to have something to make them want to learn. Yes. Jim, I'm curious to know, how did you go from teaching in the United States over to um, in, in being in Africa and teaching? Well, the, the young man who opened up the schools in Ghana mm -hmm. he was the one that had bought my picture for $3,000. I got you. Wow. That was the picture that opened up the showers and we and him became very close and guess what he was from the hood too but he went out different from oprah okay and god bless oprah but he opened up his school in silence nobody knows about him he's just buying more land and doing more and more for the african kids and that can help out the poor over there in Africa, because I had to bring a hundred pair of Marbury sneakers, because Marbury was selling uh, Stefan Marbury's from. That's Brooklyn. right. That's yeah. right. He was selling the sneakers for seven dollars. Yeah. So I went out there and bought a hundred of them. You know, hustled and everything else, and brought it to the kids in Ghana. Okay. So they were bare feet, and then being with no shoes and snakes and stuff out of, out there. It helped them out because they were able to play soccer, okay? So mm -hmm. everything, in my humble opinion, is all about recycling and giving back, giving back, giving back. That's the whole goal in my life, to give back. Jim, people don't know about Stefan Marbury and his shoes, and he really got into a lot of trouble with the NBA because he wanted his shoes to be reasonable so that all kids could purchase his shoes, where the other athletes were selling theirs at exorbitant prices. I really, I really commend Stefan Marbury for that move. Me too. He's a, he's a brother from Brooklyn. Yeah. Okay. And 
hey, listen, sneakers were going for a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. Yeah, you know, that's a lot of money. Okay, yeah. but the bottom line is that I was able to put sneakers on the children from Africa because of Stefan Marbury. Amen. Jim, tell us, tell us a little bit, Jim, about your Honey Child magazine and some of the struggles that you had to go through in order to try to follow your dream. Well, basically, there was no parenting magazine for Black people. I wanted to set up a parenting magazine, okay, so because a lot of the mothers was struggling out there because of the way the culture was set up. It was set up for the fathers to, uh, to be in the penitentiary, and they had even set up the fathers to get caught on the drug thing, okay? And if you understood what was going on with Nikki Barnes and all them other things that's coming out of our neighborhood, I said, okay, I got to do something, okay? And in doing something, that was all part of the goal, okay? Um, how, how was I going to get this done? Well, I said, let me do it through a magazine, a parenting magazine. Now, Time Warner Inc. saw it, and they said that they could make a billion off it. And they tried to get me to give them the magazine. You know, they wanted 100% equity. Now, you know what? I had went to college, and I knew what the word equity meant. That meant they wanted to own the whole daggone thing. Mm -hmm. And I was putting poor kids in the projects in the magazines. I was taking inner-city kids, and I was giving them a different image. I was making them proud of themselves, okay? Wow. And there, uh, I mean, it, it was... It was a challenge. It was something I did. Uh, we don't have a parenting magazine today, but I was not going to give it up, okay, and let them change the whole thing because they don't understand our culture. Their parenting magazine was a patriotical magazine. My magazine was a matriarchal because mm -hmm. I knew mothers were in charge. And you can shoot the black woman down if you want to, but she runs the household, okay? Amen. Mama Amen. is queen, mama is strong, and mama is the only thing that's keeping us going. I mean, that's what I, you know, said earlier about you in terms of being that trailblazer in terms of, you know, modeling and with the magazine and the art. And it all opened, all these doors opened up through your art form. And so I wanted to know, um, first of all, I want to talk about, talk about one of your pieces. Um, it's called um, After Church Barbecue. And I was just wondering if you could just tell us too about the inspiration behind that artwork piece as well. Okay, I saw, you know, I, I do my, my studies and I saw them barbecuing a black man, okay? Yeah. And I said, whoa. But it was in black and white because it was in the olden days. So I said, all right, I'm going to do a mosaic of this picture, and I'm going to do it in color. And when I did the picture, I actually 
there was they were having an art show at the Harlem State Building, and I brought that picture in. The brothers took one look at it, and they started doing libations. They started burning incense around it. The people were so engrossed in the picture, but the city owned the place. So they had to put a blanket over my picture because it was too realistic. So I wasn't able to actually show it in the Harlem State Building. They only allowed me to show it in the opening and the closing. However, what happened was that when I came to Atlanta, nobody knew my name. So in not knowing my name, that was the greatest thing that ever happened because I was able to actually, it's a huge piece. It's called the After Church Barbecue. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm doing everything, trying to get it in the Smithsonian because it's the most powerful piece that I have, but I need help because, you know, I'm just not close to the Smithsonian. I don't know anybody who knows anybody in the Smithsonian, but that's a piece that needs to be in there. Okay. Well, well we, this interview is helping to put it out now, definitely in the universe. And I just wanted to bring up that piece because as you were talking about trans, as we were segueing into George Floyd and, you know, and, just the whole activism in terms of your artwork and talking about that piece. And I just think that it's just such an important piece for folks to know about um, why you created it and is part of it. Um, I'm sorry, Dino, it's, I think you had a question for Jim. Yeah, uh, Jim, your, your works are now being placed in museums around Atlanta. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, uh, they allowed me to do a show in, in Atlanta. Okay, uh, they only kept one piece, but they allowed me to do a show. And in the show, you know, uh, people were shocked, but they edited my work. They didn't do, you know, because I had pictures of um, mass lynchings and other things. Those were the pictures that they didn't allow in. But the bottom line was at least people saw it. And I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I'm going to. I'm looking for it now. But before they did that to George Floyd, I had done a picture of him. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because uh, you know, sometimes as uh, people used to tell me that the old folks, they said, "You've been here before." Okay. <laughs> and they also. <laughs> and the reason why they said that I've been here before was that they knew the bottom line was that I would do things that was ahead of my time. Mm -hmm. So when I saw what George Floyd, you know, I saw him, I saw him and I drew him. And when I drew him, people were shocked after they killed him. Okay. Because sometimes your soul and your spirit, and God gives you things. So when I say I see things ahead of time, okay, and sometimes I draw what I see, okay, I saw George Floyd and I drew him, okay? Wow. And when we get a chance, because I, I didn't think that it would come up, I'll show you 
the actual picture that I did, all right? But other than that, uh, let's see. Okay, here it goes. Okay. There, there you go. Yes. And if is this picture is taken out of your out of your book, is this correct? Yes, it's in my book. Okay. And um if for those who are just listening to it audio, um it's called Jim Hill Historical Blues. Um and so you can get this 100 Artworks, 100 Inspired Stories. So please look it up. Jim Hill, Historical Blues. And you will be able to see this picture that he's talking about that he has on the screen for those who um, cannot, who are only listening to it. But check out his book. Um, um, thank you for showing us that. I, I mean, one of the things we, you know, in today's topic that we're talking about um, the courage of an artist. And you mentioned before that how with the um, after church barbecue, how that piece had to be covered. And then how some of some of your work, you know, just has been censored. How do you deal with that as an artist? How do you deal with your work being censored or the criticism or they're not feeling it? Well, let me just say this. The bottom line is I'm learning two things, okay? One thing is people say nobody, and this is black folks also, they said, hey, Jim, nobody wants that truth on their walls, okay? So I said, okay. They said, um, it's, it's too devastating, but it's a truth. And then I went down to the white galleries, and they said, that's not our story. We don't want none of that, okay? And mm -hmm. people said to me, hey, listen, you can make so much money with your technique if you draw Black folks playing golf, Black folks dancing, uh, Black folks on yachts. He said, you can make a mint. Just why don't you just draw what people want? and you can become a millionaire, and then you can help. And I said, no, this is for the children, because once I'm gone, hopefully this, these pictures can be passed on because I'm working very hard trying to get a space where I can set up these pictures where kids can come in and just learn about their history and what we've been through. So. I don't get turned off when people say to me, you know, especially, I mean, they'll look for something that's relaxing in my art and they'll mm -hmm. purchase that. But they, the, uh, one millionaire said that my picture of mass lynchings, he said, mm -hmm. that's a masterpiece. He said, but nobody, nobody is going to want that piece. Okay. And I, I mean, he said that nobody's going to want that truth on their walls. And I understood. But still, I had to draw it. I know God is real. And in knowing that God is real, I just got to continue to just do what he told me to do. I have to follow my purpose. And when you follow your purpose, that's it. To God yeah. be the Lord. 
Yes, because, you know, I, that was going to be one of my next questions to you in terms of what motivates you as an artist. And it just, your, um, the consciousness that you have regarding your surroundings, regarding your people, regarding the struggle um, of your people and just having social justice seems to be some of the things that motivate you. But I don't want to be the one to speak for you. You know, what What are some things... Um, you know, if if I haven't touched on it, like what are some of those things that motiv- continue to motivate you as an artist? Prayer. Mm. You know, uh, what has happened to me ever since I was a little boy, they used to accuse me of being a church boy. But it was always a story that I would have to go through in my life because God was just guiding me through all this because, hey, I'm not supposed to be alive. You know, there were so many things that could have taken me out, okay? I mean, there were uh, some young girls that I was working on fighting the drug dealers with because the drug dealers called them slim goodies. And, you know, because they were tall and everything else. And I was trying to show them, hey, listen, you can get some work as a model. And of course, I took some of them out of the hood and got them jobs as models. But one of the young ladies, um, there was a gunfight and bullets were flying. And I saw this young lady who I've been working with, and I went right into there trying to take her out, and bullets were flying. There were so many incidents where I was supposed to leave the planet. I mean, I would go in, but it was my belief in the creator, okay? There were times where young kids were trying to kill each other. One guy had a club and was going to go up against uh, another guy, and I stepped in between them. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, that wasn't going to happen. And guess what? I got slugged with the club, okay? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I went down. I was bleeding. And even though I have a large scar, it's my eyebrows covered it. I mean, I got punched in the mouth and my lip is split and everything else. But it was always God that, I mean, how in the world am I going to become a model with bruises like that all in my face? And just to be alive at this stage and continue this uh, cry, because he wants me to tell the story. I'm sorry, speaking of your story, when I had a chance to come out to the studio, there were some paintings that were on the wall, some of your artwork. One in particular was Mama. Can you talk about that one? The, The Mama picture was a strong picture in my heart because I saw what the Mamas was going through because I had to go through it. Uh, We came from South Carolina, and Mama knew what was going on in South Carolina. Now, some of you might not know about it, but even Bumpy Johnson coming from South Carolina, Bumpy was one of the head gangsters. I mean, uh, a a year before he was born, they lynched uh, a black man. They tried to lynch his brother. My mama knew the story of she knew the story of South Carolina. We had to get out of there. That little boy, the youngest boy ever executed, 14 years old, uh, was executed 
because they lied on him. Mama did not want us to go there. So we came up to the tenement houses in Gates Avenue. Eventually, we moved into the projects, okay? But it was all the struggle and pain and stuff like that. Now, Mama never did get her justice because when she left the planet, she left the planet fighting, you know, and she said to me, and that was part of the picture, she said, we will never be accepted, only in death. And she believed with all her heart that, uh, well, she was saying basically some of the same things that Malcolm X said, it, said but she was mama. Because Malcolm said, you know, they don't need no legislation. We were just never put in. And it wasn't, it wasn't expected for us to get equality. And mama never got her equality. And she didn't think that her children would get their equality. And today, I still don't have my equality, but I have the picture that I drew of mama and all the pain and suffering that she went through. But that was the story that I had to tell in the picture. Wow. Wow. Oh, my goodness. We thank you so much for being on Speak Out World with us. Yes. Um, We're just running out of time. We have to have you back. Now, if people want to either get your um, book um, or they want to contact you, find out about your artwork, um, if they want to get that book, Jim Heal, Historical Blues, where can they get in contact with you? Where can they find your work? Well, First thing, I'm going to give my phone number because they can call me directly. All right, now. Okay, 917-806-0781. Now, you can go to That sounds like a New York number. That's, I keep my New York (laughs) number. That's my Brooklyn number, okay? Uh, Now, they can also go to my website, which is Jim Hill Mosaic, Mosaic Masterpieces, but they have a little hyphen in there for masterpieces, but you can look right in the back of the book and you can, you know, put it out there in terms of how to contact me. But again, they can call me directly. Wow. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on today's show, talking about the courage of an artist. You are definitely, um, an artist with lots of courage. You have definitely stood on the truth of your artwork, your art form, and all different forms, as well as being an activist, which is what this podcast is all about. And an educator, educator, yes. And you know what, Jim? We are going to see your work in the Smithsonian. We just going to see that, and we're going to put that out there. And again, Listen, everyone, I'm, I'm your, your host, Jewel L. And I'm your host, Dino L. And we want to just remind you, just like our guest today, Jim Hill, to use your voice and don't be afraid to speak, speak out. out. Word. Yeah.